0: Good morning,
1: everyone. I uh, invite you to open your Bibles. Open your Bible to Romans chapter eight, or click there if you have it on your phone, iPad, etc. We are plugging through this book of Romans, and it has been such a joy, and I have gleaned so much from those who have opened God's Word uh, to us. And I pray that it. It is so good to see uh, the Linville's here and to hear from uh, many of our workers that are on the field over these past few weeks. We'll get to hear some more next week as we do Hope for Nations, uh, Hope for All Nations season here at TCC. And it is a gift that we have. Uh, Having seen many churches around the nation, it is a gift that we are so intimately connected and get to be a part together of going and sending. Uh, to unreached peoples and to people that need to hear the gospel all over the globe, and so I pray that you count it as a gift that we are able to link arms together in these things, and just really excited to God for His grace to us in that way. But let me read. I'll read Romans 8:12 8, to 18, and say a brief help me Jesus prayer, and then we'll dive right in. Okay, Romans 8:12 8, to 18 word of God says this. So then, brothers, sisters, family, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God. did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And here's the focus of our sermon today, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's pray. Father, have your way. Cause us to humbly say in this moment, not my will, but yours, be done. Make us aware of anything that is standing between us and you and us and others. Father, bring peace. The beautiful message of Christmas is that in the midst of all of our mess and sin and brokenness, you did not leave us alone, but you came. You came to us. And the promise, every moment of every day is that you are with us. And the unique promise of our gathering in this moment is that you are here. So change us, we pray. And give us the joy in Christ. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's Sunday morning. We made it. That's right. It is a celebration. It's a good thing. It means that we've gone through a a difficult week, potentially, or we've made it through another week. We are able to gather together with the people of God. We made it Sunday morning. If we are honest, if I am honest, there are times that we struggle to want to come here. I can long for Sunday afternoon more than Sunday morning. Can long to get distracted by life or attracted by naps or football or food more than God's Word and God's people. Do you feel it sometimes? Do you feel it when you'd just rather stay in bed or when getting the kids ready is exhausting or you've just had a really hard week and you kind of feel dull in the soul? Yes, all those things affect us, but I can say almost every Sunday as I do the what feels like the impossible work of coming sometimes, songs are sung, testimonies are given, the word is preached, prayers are prayed. Even small talk conversations happen. The ability for me to share a little bit of what's been going on with me, or me to listen a little bit of what's been going on with you, something happens. And waters do begin to rise of encouragement. And I can genuinely say most times I leave lighter, with more hope, a greater sense of perspective where God's perspective becomes a little more prevalent than my perspective. There's a there's a helpful pressing in on what is important and maybe what I had valued, what I had valued as maybe more important. Last week I was anxious, and I remember sitting right here in the morning. I actually had a what I would have called a bad attitude during setup. And I sat down. Pastor Ron Jorge gets up to preach and I felt it in my soul. I felt, Father, I'm kind of rotten inside. I need you right now to change me. And I need you right now to make me new through your work. And I can just tell you, there was, just with that moment, there was this struggle and this wrestle, but there was this receiving of God's word that did a work in my heart. And the same story happened. Left lighter, more hopeful, more encouraged, Because I wrestled through and I came. Why do I tell you this story? Because I just want you to know the wrestle is worth it. And this is Paul's message. Paul is saying that the wrestles against the flesh, the wrestles to endure in suffering, they are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. And God gives us these small little snapshots in everyday life To show us what it's like to press against something we don't want to do. And then to come on
0: the backside and to say, yep. It's worth
1: it. And these are small micro pictures of what enduring through the suffering of this life will be, because when we reach the end and glory is revealed to us and we're face to face with the King, we will say, it was worth it. That's Paul's argument today. That no matter the suffering and the brokenness of our world, the glory that is to be revealed is worth it. It's worth it. It's worth enduring through. Because Christ is worth it. So, as we read through this passage today, these verses to me, as I read them, they seem to take kind of almost an abrupt left turn. We're talking about fighting against the flesh. Then we're talking about we're children of God and the spirit of God has come to live within us. And there's this, this banner of hope. We're going to be heirs of all things, provided you suffer with him. It just felt like my identity. There's a hope. We're going
0: someplace. Left turn. Pain's here. And it is helpful, isn't it? Because that's the world in which we live. The world of earthy, difficulty,
1: and yet hope. And so, the left turn is meant to ask us a few questions of specifically the two verses that I'm honing in on, verses 17 and 18. And here are the three questions we're going to look at as we address them. What is suffering? Why must we suffer? And what helps us endure suffering? What is suffering as described here in Romans 8, 17 and 18? Why must we suffer? And what helps us endure suffering? So let's just remind ourselves just contextually kind of where we are because we have all been there in the moment of forgetfulness trying to get our brains around Romans 8. That's why we read the Bible Before we start, we just need God to remind us what he has said. And as we dive into verse 12, you see, so then, brothers and sisters, families, this familial term,
0: we are
1: debtors. Then he says, not to the flesh. Instead, it's assumed by the context we're debtors to the spirit. Why does he use financial transaction language? Pastor Ron Gior did a great job last week because the world tells us, especially McDonald's, you deserve a break today. Right? You deserve a break today. Do whatever feels good to you. Our flesh does not deserve a break. We owe, Paul says,
0: we owe the flesh nothing.
1: We owe the flesh nothing. And Paul is saying we must stop continually paying it off. You know, financially money's hard to come by, right? And you only want to give your money to what's important. And you feel kind of rotten when you give your money to a bad investment or to some type of bad experience. You do. It just feels bad. And he's saying you're a debtor but not to the flesh. And you're giving your time, your resources, your energy, your affections, your cravings, to something that doesn't deserve it. You're not a debtor to that. And so he's saying. The tone of this, of this point. That Paul is making. Is, a, is a kind of a warning to us as children. It's a danger. Take it seriously. Let's don't give all of our affections to the flesh. It will lead to death. That's what the passage says. If you live according to the flesh. You will die. So. His point in. In. Don't give to the flesh your cravings, your feelings, the lust of the body, the lust of the eyes, the pride of possessions. Don't give the flesh keys to your heart. Don't give the flesh the keys to your heart. Don't pay it to bring you satisfaction. It's death. It's not life. Now, Hebrews says it gives a a label to us kind of participating in sin. It's called fleeting pleasures. We sin because we want to. It's pleasure. That's why we do it but the author of Hebrews tells us it's a fleeting pleasure. It does not deliver. And so, of course it's pleasurable to look at that image, to vent when you're angry, to cut someone down to make yourself look better, to purchase more than you should, to consistently neglect time in the word and prayer. It feels better. It feels right in the moment. It's fleeting like you've eaten too much candy. It makes you sick, longing for something of substance. That's the effect. Paul says, don't give yourself to the flesh, but set your mind on the spirit. How do we know that we're giving ourselves to the flesh? Paul tells us he's basically given us a spiritual alert system. It's like a, a radar that goes off. Verse 16 tells us that the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children with God. So as we begin to participate in the flesh, it's like a you know kind of of alert. I wish it were that audible sometimes. It's not, but it is. It's like this press on the heart. And sometimes the press is, that's not good for you. You know not to do this. Don't step that way. Don't neglect this. But this passage says the press on the heart is not only, and I would argue maybe even not primarily what to avoid, the press on the heart is who you are. The press on the heart is you're made for something better. Isn't that what the text says? He bears witness with our spirit that we're children. And so the the radar system is a flash. You're a child. You're a child not of the flesh, but of God himself. That's one way that we know that we are giving ourselves to the flesh is that the spirit of God, he tells us you're a child, you're secure, you're loved, you're provided for. Don't give your life to enslaving things, as the text says, to fear, to insecurity, to sexual fluidity or promiscuity, to filling up your life with things against the spirit. Whatever it is, don't do it. David Pallison is helpful here. David Pallison says, you know, ultimately desires are not evil things. How do we know that we are beginning to dive into the flesh? You can definitely desire the wrong things. But he says even more when desires shift to demands. Now, you know, you're starting to flirt with the flesh. When desires shift to demands. I desire this, I demand you give it to me. When that happens, now all of a sudden you should have that spiritual radar system that I am beginning to flirt with the flesh. And then, Callison goes on to say, desire, I desire, shifts to I demand, shifts to I judge you for standing in the way of those demands, to I punish you for not delivering on what I desire. It's the cycle of the heart. The judging is assessing wrong motives. It's asserting things that aren't there. The punishment can be either the out loud anger or it can be the silent treatment or anything in between. This is how we relationally act. And the, the thing that is put before us here is Paul is saying, don't give yourself to the flesh. Don't give yourself to the flesh. Mindset of the flesh, it doesn't pay off. It doesn't deliver. But that's the bad news. I do want to say the overwhelming sentiment of Romans 8 is that sin will not win. The Spirit of God has come to reside in the heart. The overwhelming sentiment of Romans 8 is not the bad news. It is the good news of Jesus Christ crucified who did what the law could not do, even though it was weakened by the flesh. Christ did it came as a sacrifice and died in our place and rose from the dead and gave us His Spirit to live inside of us. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And He has made you children. And if you're children, then you're heirs. Heirs of everything that is given to Christ. That's the overwhelming sentiment. And if you're in Christ, nothing. Absolutely nothing. No amount of suffering. No amount of pain will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen! Exclamation point. Romans 8. That's the overwhelming sentiment. I think sometimes we are tempted to so focus on the negative and on the sin stuff and on the flesh stuff that we miss the overwhelming sentiment. But for those who are so hardened that they're not fighting against the flesh, take the warning, it does lead to death. But the bulk of this time, my friends, is on the fact that we're debtors to the spirit. We owe the spirit. Everything it reminds me of Iron Man in those Marvel movies. I don't know if you've seen the first Iron Man. It's too late for it to be a spoiler. It's been on way too long. So Iron Man, he goes, he gets kind of blown up in this traveling through the desert oh, in, as he's selling uh, military weapons. And he gets kind of thrown to pieces and there's all kinds of shrapnel in there. So he creates in this cave, this what's called, I call it this shiny thing in his chest. It's called an arc reactor. And that thing has two functions. It keeps all of the shrapnel from closing in and killing him, so it repels it, and it also eventually fuels the Iron Man suit. So, you know, it's pretty cool, but it's kind of in his chest, and that's kind of fun. So he owes everything to it. You take that thing out, he's gone. This is what it means to be a debtor. He is totally indebted to that thing. We are indebted to the spirit. The overwhelming sentiment is the security that we have in Christ. And the way we are secure is that God has given, as Pastor Manjur said last week, God. That's Christmas. God's given us himself. He's given us himself. Come to live inside of us. And let's just run through real quickly and then we'll get to those three questions. When He has given us His Spirit, look at Romans eight eleven. We are indwelt by the Spirit. This is what He's given us. Romans eight eleven. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will
0: also give to your
1: mortal bodies, give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. I promise you. You meditate on that verse every single day this week. You will not be the same. The living spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead is with you at all times. At all times. And when you were saved, you were not just forgiven and your slate wiped clean. And righteousness given to your account. You didn't just make it out of the courtroom not guilty. Sometimes that's all we talk about when it comes to salvation. It's so much more. You're not guilty. White claim. Justified by faith. But you are inhabited by the living God never left alone, always thought for, so there is hope in every single moment of every single day. If you believe Jesus is alive, and you know the only thing that could do that is some supernatural, remarkable power, and then you dwell on Romans eight eleven that he lives inside of you. The reason I participate in sin is because I forget it or I don't believe it. He's inside us. He loves us. We're secure in him. I need nothing else but Christ. Indwelt by the Spirit. That is exactly right. Amen. Hallelujah. Shout out loud at any time in this sermon. It is so welcome. If you at home want to do that, I want you to do that too. Okay. Indwelt by the Spirit. We're also empowered by the Spirit. Look at verse 13. Put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. We're not left powerless. We're also not only indwelt and empowered by the Spirit, but we are what I call refamilied by the Spirit. We're just given a whole new family. Totally redone. No longer orphans. This echo of family language we already heard in verse 12. Brothers, sisters, but you see it in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And Pastor Ronjur talked about that last week. Verse 15. And it says, for you did not receive an adoption of spirit. The spirit of slavery. you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption of sons, which call which does something in our heart and we just cry out, Abba Father. So we've been refamilied, and when God is called Father, it is this banner over us is love. I do believe that's why he ends Romans eight with nothing can separate us from the love of God, because when God is called Father, we are being told he is love love towards us as children. Now, if anything will make you question the security you have in Christ, His presence in your life, it's suffering. It's pain. It's difficult. And Paul brings it up here to say, although suffering is necessary for us to get to glory, Nothing compares with the glory that's to come. So, when suffering comes and you face it, He is not unchilding you. He's not orphaning you. He's not abandoning you. He's not disowning you. And this is why we labor so hard for that overwhelming sentiment that you and I are children in Christ. So, now let's look at these verses. And let's just say, answer these three questions quickly. What are they? The first one is, what is suffering? So if you follow the logic, we are children. We are heirs of God. And then he says, verse 17, if children and heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him, verse 18, because I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that that is to be revealed to us. The first question is, what does Paul mean here by suffering? What is it? Many times when we ask these kind of questions, I think sometimes we are tempted to relegate suffering as only those who would go to some third world country and sacrifice their life as a quote missionary or gospel taker to those countries. That is true sacrifice and therefore that's the only suffering that's, ha- that's being referred to. Let's go to some country that, where the government's against it and when that government imprisons you or you get beaten up for your faith, that's what Paul's talking about. I want us to look at it in context and I want us to answer the question, what is Paul meaning here by suffering? Is that it? Well... What's the context been? I, I labored kind of a long time for, as an intro on what the context is. It's fighting against the flesh, right? Fighting against the flesh and walking in the spirit. Well, listen to this. In Philippians 3.8, Paul helps us. He says this. Indeed, I count everything of lo- as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. What's he saying by me surrendering all of my life to Jesus. There is a suffering that has taken place when I count everything else as loss. When I say my possessions are not as good as Jesus. My marriage is not as good as Jesus. My kids are not as good as Jesus. This church is not as good as Jesus. Some type of money or anything. My job is not as good as Jesus. Like, nothing is as good as Jesus. When I say it's a ledger and everything else is on the loss column and Jesus is on the gain column and he wins, that's what he's saying. And that's going to incur some sense of suffering. So, some of the suffering in light of Romans 8 is when you... Do what you don't want to do. When you fight against the flesh, this is some of the suffering that he is referring to. Whenever you are putting to death the deeds of the body by the spirit, in some senses, that is a a suffering, that discipline, that pain that you feel. It is a sort of suffering, but the suffering is more than that. And here's how I know. Paul also extends suffering beyond that. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Paul says to Timothy, who's pastoring the church at Ephesus, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So Paul's in prison. Timothy is just pastoring a church in Ephesus. And he's saying together, we're sharing in suffering that is coming because we love the gospel and we want to take the gospel where it goes. So when we follow Jesus in taking the gospel where it should go, we should expect suffering. Listen to second Timothy two, three, he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Isn't it unique? He doesn't put a context there. He doesn't say a certain region of the world. He doesn't say this. All he says is to be a follower of Jesus, is to be a soldier in his army, and it's to share in suffering. That's why he says in Acts 14, verse 21 and 22, it says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples that returned to Lystra and to Iconia and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying this, through many tribulations, or through much suffering, we must enter the kingdom of God. Why is he saying this? Why, Why is this included here in Romans 8? Because we know that suffering can tempt us to feel like we've been abandoned, And because suffering feels doubly bad if we don't expect it. Here he's saying you should expect it. Paul's encouragement to Timothy as a pastor over this church in Ephesus says you should expect it. So what is the suffering? The suffering seems to be any pain emotionally, physically, spiritually that you encounter... As you are following Jesus, faith. So I gave the one scenario. You go to a country that doesn't want you there. You get in prison. You get beaten up for the faith. People would say, yeah, that's suffering for the gospel. But what happens if you don't get beat up for the faith? You don't get in prison. But because you went to said country, your stomach doesn't set what sit well with the food that you're eating regularly. And you're constantly sick. Would you call that sickness suffering for the sake of the gospel? I would. I would. You might be like, yeah, I do. But what happens if you go to your neighbor in Cary or Durham or Garner or downtown or southeast or North Raleigh or Wake Forest, and your interaction with that neighbor had no idea they were a little sick, you got a cold from them, and your whole aim was just to go and encourage them. Is that suffering for the sake of the gospel? Because the context changed. It doesn't seem like it, does it? It seems in the scriptures, the suffering that Paul is talking about is any suffering we incur when walking faithfully in love for the sake of Jesus. Paul tells us this later on in Romans 8. What is the suffering he's talking about? Look at verse 22. There's suffering that comes from natural disasters. Creation is groaning because this world is broken. Look at verse 22 to 24. There's pain that comes from longing for wrongs to be made right. We really want all the wrong, the brokenness of the world to be made right. And that creates a pain in our heart that this world is so broken. That's suffering. Verse 26. 28. Emotional or physical pain that leaves you without words. You know the passage, right? You don't even know what to pray. It's a picture of suffering. Verse 31. The pain that comes from people being against you. If God is for us, who can be against us? The context is somebody feels against you. But if God is for you, who can be against you? This is the suffering he is describing in verse 17. Look at verse 33. Pain from being charged with wrongs. Verse 34. Pain from being legally or spiritually condemned. It's God who justifies. Who can condemn you? Do you see all this? And let's just summarize it in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Self. Tribulation. That's just general trials. Distress. Probably emotional anxiety, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. This is what he means by suffering in verse 17. So. Suffering in verse 17 is any pain, emotional, spiritual, physical, incurred from following Jesus. And then in verse 18. In verse 18, when we read, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, I believe it gets a little more general to include all of the brokenness of our world, from persecution to fighting against the flesh to the pain of self-denial. It's not worth comparing with what's to come. Definitions are important. You might totally remove your situation because some reason you have placed your suffering as off limits to these promises, and I'm saying don't do it. When you're walking with Jesus, any emotional, physical, spiritual pain that you incur is meant to be included in these promises. So then, why must we suffer? Why am I even asking this question? Does it not read like it's conditional? Look at the verse. If children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him, it almost sounds like I will only be a child if I go find suffering. So therefore, and this is honestly, this is an epidemic in the ministry world from pastoring to leading nonprofits to going overseas to be missionaries. It's an epidemic that the more you suffer the more faithful you are. If you go to the hard place, then you're really spiritual. And what you suddenly communicate is if you go to the hard place, you're actually going to be more loved by God. What should drive you and I to the hard place is the bigness of God's love for us in the midst of our hard place. It should be this clear sense of brokenness Over three billion people that don't know Christ, but don't let the gospel be uprooted in your heart to say, I'll be more loved if I go to the heart. I'll be more loved if I sacrifice more. It, It begins to create tears of Christianity. And some of you have felt it who are not in some type of full time vocational ministry. Oh, I'm simply a teacher or a lawyer or a yard worker or whatever. They're the real workers you to follow Christ, and for every follower of Christ, that means proclaiming Christ where you are, and living as an example of Jesus' goodness and love to you, where you are, and those callings will be different for a lot of people. We do
0: not need all of this ranking
1: of Christianity. These people are better. The ones you put on stage, oh, they're the real good ones. They're faithful to what God has called them to do, and we need to support them and encourage them and acknowledge the danger and bless them and pray for them and send them. But that does not mean you are less or less loved. We have to ask ourselves, what does this condition mean? He is not saying go look for suffering he's saying you better wake up that when you walk with Jesus you will suffer you will he's already said in Romans 5 That Romans 5 says that we can rejoice in suffering because it's going to work something in us and that's what he wants us to know that we are suffering with him why must we suffer then if it's not to earn God's love, if it's not to, you know, get greater points, why must we suffer? Because this world is broken. I've already talked about it, but I'll give you a couple other reasons. One, because Jesus suffered. Why must we suffer? Because Jesus suffered. It's always been a fascinating verse to me. The perfect Son of God, it said in Hebrews 2.18. For because He Himself has suffered, when He tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Our Savior suffered, and He can help us suffer. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. But it's also why we experience suffering. Because we experience suffering, we can help others who suffer. Second Corinthians 1, 5, and 7. We share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. As we suffer, we actually experience comfort comfort in a greater degree. Here's the way it works. You suffer, God's comfort comes to you and meets you. When you don't suffer, you experience comfort, but not the depth of comfort that is required for the depth of pain. And so, as you share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, you too will share abundantly in Christ's comfort. So why must we suffer? Because our Savior suffered. Why must we suffer? Because it helps us understand comfort. Why must we suffer? Because suffering is a teacher. I've said suffering is a seminary. It is is a place that teaches us. And this is the verse that I thought I was reading earlier and I didn't, but now it's here. Hebrews 5.8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. The perfect son of God was a learner at the teacher of suffering. This not only speaks to his humanity, but it also speaks to his role in our lives. The pain that we experience teaches us something that we cannot learn any other way. The scriptures come alive. This is what God has done. That's Romans 5. That this process of going through suffering, it's necessary to teach us. Isn't that what Romans 5, 3 says? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame. Suffering teaches us character. It teaches us endurance. And it begins to cultivate deeper and deeper hope. But make no mistake, Paul is saying suffering is going to be necessary to get us to the end. Isn't that how it seems to talk? Your child, you're an heir, provided you suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 1 Peter chapter 1 also talks about the necessity of suffering. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, You've been grieved with various trials. Why are we grieved with various trials? So that the tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The suffering we incur puts our faith in in a refiner's fire and it comes out pure. It's necessary but it gets us to the end. So why must we suffer? We must suffer because suffering is a teacher. We must suffer because Jesus suffered. And the last one I just want to throw out is from a its a line from a friend of mine, Tim Kane, pastor in San Diego. And here it is. Why must we suffer? Because suffering is the exhale of love. Suffering is the exhale of love. Now, why do we use this breathing language? Well, it's because Paul uses an intense moment. All women who have given birth, you understand that breathing is pretty necessary in the giving birth process. So, Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, Paul begins to describe his suffering, his anguish for the church as the angst of childbearing. Some of you women who've been through that might feel offended. How do you know, buddy? You know, it's an image. Go with it, okay? My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. The burden of pastors is that Jesus is formed in us all in us as pastors, in the church, that Jesus is formed. And honestly, it does create a sense of anxiety and angst. Paul describes his angst as childbirth. Not a light image. But when you are dealing with childbirth and the suffering is really acute, what are you told when you are breathing in that moment? Not to, re- you just want to breathe through it, right? Don't, don't do that. Breathe. Exhale. Breathe through it. Breathe through the pain. It will end. Fight the pain. It makes it worse. Don't try to protect yourself. Breathe through it. And this is what he's saying suffering requires. Whenever you suffer, in love, you can expect that suffering will come. It is the exhale of love that is suffering. Meaning, when you walk on the road of suffering, I mean, walk on the road of love, it will bring pain. But, just like childhood, the ground of our acceptance. It doesn't earn us anything before God. But what we must understand when Jesus says love God, your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, he's saying when you love your neighbor as yourself it's the breathing process. It's <sighs> suffering. It's what comes when you walk in love. It's what comes. And so he's inviting us, as we walk by the Spirit, he's inviting us to walk in love. Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a missionary who created the China Inland Mission in the late 1800s. He did not go because it was a riskier place. He did not go to inland China because he thought it would give him greater notches in his spiritual belt. He didn't go through all of the schooling and all the language learning and he didn't change his dress and he didn't try to start his medical practice there simply because he thought that the greater sacrifice made him the greater Christian. No. What drove Hudson Taylor was that there was a people who had never heard of the goodness of Jesus. And so he said, because I have been loved I must love them. God placed a unique burden on his heart for the people of inland China. Not another country. It's just beautiful how, if you read his biography, just... All of the different interweavings of how these things happened and how his affections grew. And it could be any of the 200 plus countries, but no, it was China. And it wasn't just on the coast, China. It was inland China. He was burdened. Love drove him. It was the story God was writing in his life, but he went because of love. And as he walked in love, he did experience some suffering, he experienced joy. He experienced conversions. He experienced churches being started. He experienced God providing in financial ways that were almost inexplicable. But God did it. He saw so many great things, but he also saw the loss of children. He saw great physical sickness. He encountered depression and anxiety. in Romans 8, because we're all going to experience it, because the Christian, the child of God who has received love, will walk in love. The fruit on the tree says that there's life in the tree. That's why he's saying it the way he says it. You're a child if you suffer with him because you're going to walk in love. It's just what you do. And when you walk in love, I just want you to know you're going to suffer. Your suffering will actually be a teacher to get you to the end, to get you to glory. Isn't that what the text says? Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So, finally, what helps us endure suffering? That's Paul's point. You and I want to get to glory. We want the brokenness of this world to be taken away. The new heavens and the new earth, the tears wiped away. The relationship strife to be no more. The unmet expectations to be gone. Full satisfaction to overflowing forever. And most importantly, all that meant because you're in the presence of Jesus. Glory. Glory. He says in verse 18, I consider that the suffering of this present time, no matter how bad it is, it's not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's a glory that is to come. A glory that is to come that far outshines the badness of the present day. I was talking with a dear woman in our church this week. She told the story of many times in wartime, the generals would require these soldiers To draw pictures or to write out what they are longing to come back home for. The family, the house, the fields, some type of hometown growing up. What are you longing, the kids that you might have left behind, the relationships, to draw it, to write it, to submit the image in the brain. Because when the bullets are flying and the pain is all around Many times, what helped them continue to go was the image to come. What was before them. What they were fighting for. And this is exactly Paul's line of argumentation. There's a glory that's coming that makes everything that you're going through worth it. Isn't that what he says in Romans 5? It's a hope that won't disappoint. You're not going to get to the last day and say, man, I wish it were better. It's not going to happen. You will say, I never dreamed. I could not imagine. Every labor to meditate on that day of glory fell short. This exceeds all expectations. And what Paul is wanting us to do is to reflect upon that glory, to meditate on that glory. Because
0: that's what will help us endure. The
1: glory is better. It's worth it. Creation will be redeemed. We're not just going to be floating in clouds. The new heavens and the new earth comes down. It's earthy. And what we love about this earth that's holy, and right, and good, we will enjoy forever and ever and ever. From music to creation. To one another. All in the presence of Christ. It is the
0: shindo of this that
1: glory is coming. Just like this orchestra that's playing and it was quiet for a moment and then you have those keys that make the music maybe not so enjoyable and all of a sudden every instrument is playing the whole choir is singing and it is at the apex of the moment in the song this is what Paul is saying all the pain is not worth comparing to what's to come so if he came it's Christmas he did come. If He died, He did. If He rose from the dead, and He did. If He ascended with all authority in heaven and on earth to the right hand of the Father, and He did. And if He by His Spirit lives inside of us, and He does, He will get us to the end. That's why I said Romans 8, is worth meditating on. The same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will get us to the end. I was sitting with a dear brother this week who probably will not have um, a lot longer on this earth. Those moments are some of the greatest privileges as a pastor, is to sit with people in their last days and to hear this dear brother talk. Reminded me of what it looks like to believe the promises of Romans 8. When he says in his words, "Death, I'm not worried about that one iota. Just not worried about it." There's, he said with his words, no prompting that I'm preaching this this week. Nothing here can begin to compare to where I'm going. He says, I don't have any angst at all. He says, I'm enjoying life here, but I know this life, it won't compare. And he says, I know this. I won't go one second before the Lord wants me to go. And when he wants me, I'm going to be there. This man believed these promises. And all the suffering he's experienced in his life, he has clung to Jesus because Jesus has clung to him. God has kept him. He's kept him to the end. And no matter when the end end is, he has confidence. Glory is going to be better. It's going to be better. So friends, what are we doing here? Why do we gather week in and week out? As one Puritan says, Church is a suburb of heaven. It's not quite downtown, but it's right on the edges. We're preparing one another for that day, friends. My interaction with you, you're preparing me for heaven. Hearing your faithfulness week in and week out, your struggles against the flesh, your failing at times, you're hoping in Christ, the imperfection of our lives together, we're preparing one another for having our singing, it's preparing one another for the songs that we will sing on the last day. And so friends, let's fight through the times when we don't want to come, to keep coming, to prepare one another for the day that is far better than anything we experience here. Let's pray. Father, I love you and I thank you for loving us. And I just pray. that you will help us help us to walk in love without fear. Whenever anyone talks, Father, about suffering and pain, I really feel like I want to run the other way. But Father, I pray that something about this passage, primarily the fact that you will not leave us and all the benefits of walking in love for the person we're loving, but also for us, and also how it is preparing for us and necessary for us to get to the end, which is far better. I just ask that you would wash us with a strange sense of the absence of fear. And you would wash us with the beautiful reminder that we are children, loved, thought for, protected, cared for, and kept to the end. Father, I ask that there would be times in our week where we just are given to reflection upon what is to come. I ask that you give hope to the hopeless. I ask that you bring courage to the discouraged. Father, I pray that this church would grow in hope, in love, in affection for Jesus, in maturity, in mission. And so help us with prayer. Right now, I just want to give a moment for you to reflect upon what Jesus is doing in your heart. That's one thing about this walk with Jesus. All of us encourage each other, but we can't do for each other. What only we must sit and allow Jesus to do in us. So whether it's a confession of sin, whether it's surrendering something you've held on to, whether it's just confessing faith that you believe that he loves you and he's for you, whatever it is, I can't pretend to know, but I know that he cares and he's here. So talk to the Lord right now. Talk to him. If you're not a follower of Jesus, Surrender your life to Christ. Ask him to change you from the inside out. Confess that it is not working for you to try to save yourself. And ask him to come and live inside of you.